My guest is Cathy Ashton. Baroness Ashton of Upholland was the European Union's first High Representative for Foreign Security Policy, a post she held from 2009 to 2014. And she's just written a, a book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, a kind of memoir of her time as a High Representative. Welcome to the podcast, Cathy. Thank you, Paul. My first question to you, actually, is quite a simple one. Why did you wait so long to to write this. You left the post almost almost 10 years ago. You, why did you give yourself so much time before putting pen to paper? Well, these stories are based on recordings that my husband made with me at the time because I didn't keep a diary. And over the years, I've transcribed them and then found that people asked me about what happened. And sometimes you need a length of time to have gone by before you can really write about that period. It's better because I obviously talk about people that I was negotiating with or working with at the time, though I'm not horrible about anybody. <laughs> um, but as importantly, it seemed to me it was a good moment to reflect on what had gone before because sadly, pretty much all of the issues I talk about are still to be resolved. Right, well we'll come to the nitty gritty of your book in a second. Again, about the, some of the background to you getting the job in the first place, because it was, it was quite a, an interesting, and some would say quite a controversial time, actually. People weren't expecting, let's be frank, and you'd be the first to admit it, your nomination to, to come through. You say in the, in the introduction to your book that you, you didn't really enjoy the job. That's quite a bold statement. Explain why you didn't enjoy it, please. Well, getting the job, as you rightly say, was unexpected, to say the least, not least by me. And I often say it's a bit like when you see um, a character in a book put on the screen in a movie or a film and it doesn't look like you thought it was going right. to. Well, I was kind of in that position. I wanted to be really honest about how I felt about the job, that it wasn't a job that you enjoy. Lots of people would say to me, are you enjoying it? And enjoyment was about the last thing yeah. because it was relentless, as I say, mm. and it was work that meant you were dealing with some of the most tragic and difficult and complicated issues in the world and trying your very best as an individual to make a difference or make an impact. So enjoyment never came into it. It doesn't mean there weren't great moments yeah. and there weren't great friendships and there weren't moments when we really succeeded. But to say I enjoyed it is to suggest it was, it was more frivolous than it really was. It was a really tough and difficult job to do and I met so many people going through such terrible and challenging yeah. times. What skill set do you think you brought to the job from your previous political uh, appointments both in the UK and as European Trade Commissioner and what skill did you think you had to acquire on the job? Well I'm a sort of jack or jill of all trades you know I'm someone who's done work in health education justice trade and so on and I bring the same skill set, which is, I think, the ability to be able to work out what we should do and then try and implement it, and to work alongside and with people. Um, and that seemed to have held me in good stead. Many of the roles that I've played in the past have required a level of negotiation or mediation of one kind or another. You know, if you're merging hospitals, if you're chairing a health authority, or if you're trying to get legislation through the upper chamber in, in the British uh, Parliament, all of these things require you to bring people with you, and I suppose that's what I could do. The thing I had to do, of course, was learn the subject, right. and that was like doing a, an exam every day, 
working out where things were, working out what the problems were, and getting the history lessons too, because you need an awful lot of information in order to try and work out what difference you might be able to make. Okay, this might seem a bit of a trite question, but do you think the fact that you're a woman in this job made, made, made a difference and you were, uh, being a woman you approached the, these very quite difficult and complex issues in, in a different way compared to a, a man doing the same job? I'm sure there are differences, but what I really feel is that the best team you can put together to deal with anything, because you're never on your own, you're always working with, in my case, some of the greatest diplomats across Europe, the best teams are when you get men and women together. We certainly saw that with the Iran negotiations. I saw that working with Fernando Gentilini on the Serbia-Kosovo agreement and in the teams that worked with me across what we came to know as the Arab Spring. Mm. It was when you had men and women together. So yes, there were things probably that I approached slightly differently because I'm a woman, but it was working with men and women that made the difference. Right. So not only were you the first high representative, formally speaking, under the treaty, although obviously it's predecessor like Javier Solana, but you also had to create this service, this, this foreign service. I'm not supposed to call it a foreign service, I know, but the European External Action Service. How much, of a, I won't say a distraction, but to have to set up a service at the same time jetting around the world trying to solve major issues, how, how challenging was that? I think I described it as trying to fly a plane while still screwing the wings off. <laughs> that you know you you tried to kind of get this new new thing the first sort of quasi institution for 50 years in the EU to to work um, effectively and it was really challenging to be honest because we had to bring in people from different buildings from different parts of the EU framework different institutions yeah. and member states yeah. and eventually the European Parliament and try and make them into a cohesive team that, that they could feel proud to be part of the external action service. I call it a foreign policy service too. <laughs> uh, well, one of the reasons why the book is so accessible is that you take each chapter, a, a major issue like, as you said, the Arab Spring or, or Kosovo or um, Iranian uh, negotiations, uh, which maybe give the impression maybe to readers that they all happen sort of in, in sequence, one from each other, you know, and there was no overlap. But obviously, a lot of these, lot of these issues, contentious issues, were happening in your intray at the same time. So, how did you, how did you even prioritize what to, what to get your teeth into, and 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 what do you have to, and how did you work out things to be left to slightly less, a lower level of priority? Well, there was a, a major element of the job that I thought was really important, which was to prove that there were things that Europe could do. Right that member states individually or even as groups could not do as well and to be able to show European action, especially in our own backyard. Right. And so the choice of wanting to work in the Western Balkans was an easy choice because it was such an important group of countries. But the choice to do the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue was because I could see an opportunity with the leadership that we had in both places to at least try and bring them together. And I, I don't mind failing, <laughs> but I did want to try. And it was important to do something that would show European Union member states and the neighborhood, and also our transatlantic partners, the mm. US, that Europe could do things that were European. And that was crucial. And then the Iran talks, the same. The EU had a very particular role of coordinating, leading, mm. chairing, the negotiations and that was unique to the EU and I wanted to show that that would happen and then other things were as events took over yeah 
it's worth saying that, as you rightly point out, things happened at the same time. So I was actually moving from the Iran talks in Vienna, where the Russians were on our team, to Kiev. Of course, the Russians were mm -hmm. our, you know, the people that we were extremely angry with yeah. and determined to try and support Ukraine in dealing with them. And yet we managed to kind of keep those two things running at the same time. There were lots and lots of moments of overlap, as well as more generally representing the EU across the world. I suppose listening to you speak, a part of the job maybe that's under underappreciated is how much you had of your time you, and your colleagues, obviously not just you, had to explain to your interlocutors what your role was. It's a brand new role, rough in, in effect, and the service behind it. So, you know, in order for people even to take your calls, you had to explain why they should take your call and sit to them in a meeting with you. Were you very much aware of that kind of pedagogic aspect of your job? Oh, definitely. I mean, there were there were many moments when. You know, the conversation had to begin with why on earth should people talk to me yeah. as opposed to talking to individual member states, particularly at the beginning. And I remember the very first meeting with Foreign Minister Lavrov from Russia yeah. when I could see how sceptical he was. <laughs> so I told him a joke that someone had told me, which was that someone had said to the president of the US, good news, we have the phone number for Europe. It's Kathy's phone. And the president said, great, let's ring it. So they rang it and they got my voicemail and it said, welcome to Europe for the French position, press one, for the German <laughs> position, press two. And it broke the ice with him. Right. But the point was that I was under no illusion at the beginning that we had to create something that would glue together the views and aspirations of the 27, then later 28, mm. now back to 27, mm. who would... Um, see that this was a kind of European perspective to which they could happily sign up to and belong. The fact there was a new role, and we'll move on to certain issues like maybe Ukraine in a second for obvious reasons, but the fact there was a new role and there was no extensive manual in the view to consult, did that make life easier for you in the sense you could, without being too simplistic, you could make up some of the rules as you went along? Or did you have to, on the contrary, be hyper-cautious, hyper-sensitive to what the member states were thinking in the Foreign Affairs Council, which you chaired, and, and making sure every time you took any kind of relatively important step, you, you had that some kind of mandate from, the, from your foreign ministers? So the first time I chaired the Foreign Affairs Council, I looked around the table. It was 27 member states, 27 foreign ministers, all men, actually, hmm. who I was pretty confident, many of whom had not read the Lisbon Treaty and therefore were wondering what this would mean. And many of whom were very senior politicians in their own countries, often leaders of parties in coalition and so on, who were determined to make their own mark in foreign policy. Hmm. And so it was crucial to me that they understood, first of all, this was not one voice, i.e. mine, this was 28 or 29 voices hmm. working together and that we should all be saying the same thing and making sure that they appreciated that by working together their view was amplified along with everybody else's. In other words, the priorities they had would be picked up by the other countries in return for the same being said for them. So it was about trying to build a team hmm. of member states and that was a big focus for me of the first years of the, of the job was to make sure that we did build that team. I chaired you know, 10 councils a year. We never voted and we never failed to reach agreement. And I was proud of that. And I was proud of the fact the ministers were all there because it really mattered to me that they saw this as their home for foreign policy and where they could come and get their views across. 
I want to talk uh, quite a lot of, to you about about Ukraine 10 years ago, eight, nine, 10 years ago, because you've obviously met Putin many times and people will be fascinated to hear your views on that. Before, but before we do that, briefly for the, for the benefit of listeners who aren't aware of this, um, some of us do know, it's, it's recorded in your book on Egypt, the, the extraordinary um, journey you took and quite dangerous journey you took to see uh, ex-President Morsi. Could you explain in a few words how that came about and what, what kind of the hoops you had to jump through to actually get a, a meeting with a guy under what circumstances? So the people may remember that, that after President Mubarak left, there was an election in Egypt and they elected Mohamed Morsi. And it became clear over the following months and year that the government was failing in many aspects of what it had said it would do. That people were feeling that this was not a government and not a president who was providing for the people of Egypt. One of the things I said to him in office was, it's not enough to be in office, it's what you do with it. Mm. You can't just be elected, you have to do things. And he was removed by a coalition that spanned from the Grand Imam to the Coptic Pope to the leaders of most of the political parties involved and with the support of the army and others. So this was a huge moment in Egypt's history as we look at it now but at that time it was a moment when the the people had kind of decided that things had to change and for the european union and for others this was about well what does this mean he is an elected president removed is this a coup was it not a coup or is this a moment where egyptians have actually decided that they need to take action before the country descends into what some of us feared could have become a kind of civil war and I went out to Egypt uh, to talk with those who had come in as interim prime ministers and so on, including the then defence minister, um, now President al-Sisi. And um, one of the things I was keen that we were clear about was that we would help Egypt, but we needed to know that the president who'd been removed was being looked after in some form. Right. Um, because nobody knew where he'd gone. Right. And to be fair, um, now President Olsis was very clear that I could see him. And so the next trip that I made, we asked again if I could go, and it was organised that I would. It mattered to the member states of the EU, it mattered to me, and it mattered to an understanding that Egypt was moving forward in a positive way. We also, I think, hoped at that time that we could do more to negotiate between mm. um, the political party that uh, mostly belonged to and the rest, if you like, of Egyptian society in order to try and keep a sort of democratic framework. Um, and the actual journey was, was quite clandestine. You were, it was a total secrecy. Maybe give us a flavour of that, Cathy. It was extraordinary. We went in the evening to an airbase where um, a uh, Black Hawk helicopter was a lit up waiting for myself and Christian Berger, who was the one official I could take with me. I couldn't take a phone or a handbag or anything. Wow. We went in what we stood up in. And um, interestingly, they said it would be a 15-minute flight, half-hour visit, 15-minute flight back. I'd be back. In about an hour. I actually got back, I think, at three in the morning oh, gosh. from eight in the evening. And that was because it was a much bigger journey out by helicopter and then into 
a car, quite a battered car, uh, in the back. All of the windows were blacked out with what looked like black rubbish bags, <laughs> uh, except, of course, for the front. And the doors that we were in didn't open. All right. And two young men in jeans and T-shirts, but they were clearly army with guns, got in the front. And off we went wow. into the night to drive through some pretty potholed roads. You had no idea where you were going? No idea where we were going at all. Uh, we just assumed that we would find Morsi at the end of it, which in fact we did. Um, there was a funny moment when after all this travelling, they turned to me and said, we've just heard that he will see you, to which my view was, well, too right he's going to see me after all this. <laughs> um, but uh, we then spent an hour with him, an hour and a half with him, and then came back. All right, let's move on then to Ukraine. I want to talk to you about Ukraine, both in terms of what you did in the job, dealing with uh, Putin then, and, and Lavrov and others, and then any, any views you may have about the current situation, because you probably know Putin much better than most people. So tell us, please, how your, your, your discussion with Putin and Lavrov came about. Obviously, it's different administration, different regime in Ukraine at the time, not the current one, obviously, but the same players on the Russian side. So what, what, were you, what, was, the EU, what was the EU trying to achieve with Russia and Ukraine in, in that time? Well, initially, to try and stop Russia from, first of all, moving further into Ukraine. Remember that when they took Crimea and moved into the Donbass, we didn't know that they would stop, necessarily. That they could have decided to move further into Ukraine to take more, or even to try and take the whole country. And in that period, you know, Ukraine had been through this great turbulence. President Yanukovych had left. President Poroshenko was then in office, but was recently in office. So it was a it was a much more turbulent and difficult and challenging time. Um, we always tried to find ways to talk, to put pressure on this kind of twin approach, which I think marks the EU, which is to be willing to talk, but also to be absolutely clear about outcomes. There comes a point when you can no longer do that, and I suspect we're there now. But in those days, it was about trying to find a resolution to this. And in our meetings, especially the meeting that uh, President Lukashenko of Belarus hosted in Minsk, it's not part of the Minsk negotiations or agreements, mm. this was an earlier Minsk meeting, which included President Nazarbayev of Kazakhstan, as well as President Putin, President Poroshenko, myself with two other commissioners. This was about trying to find ways to sort out not just the issues that were concerning to Russia at the time, but most importantly, to persuade Russia to withdraw hmm. and for Ukraine to be able to operate as a country free uh, and sovereign, um, much as we're kind of all engaged in now. And that was really important to at least try and find ways to achieve that. It became very clear that that was not possible. What were your personal impressions of, of Putin? And did they, did they evolve over time? Uh, as, as you, Each time you met him, did you have a better feel for what kind of person he, he, he was and he is? He was somebody who, you could tell who the most powerful person in the room was. He didn't right. have to do very much partly because of the way other people treated him. Right, the deference. And, the yeah. deference, but, but also because he was quite clearly in charge. Mm. Um, and it's often the case if you walk into a room full of people, you can spot mm. who yeah. that is. 
Um, he was absolutely determined on Russia being taken seriously mm. and Russia being seen as a strong and important power. Um, I would say that he still viewed Russia's place in the world as a kind of superpower. Um, he had very little time for this idea of the European Union. He wasn't at all convinced that this was in Russia's interests. Uh, I don't think he cared much about whether it was in Europe's interests. Mm. And he was absolutely determined that Ukraine would see itself as in some way or another linked to Russia. Right. Whether that was a separate country with strong economic and political ties, whether that was... In this customs union idea, country. right? Yeah. Right. And the customs union idea arose, you know, not long after we had been negotiating uh, Russia's entry into the World Trade Organization, right. which I had done in St. Petersburg. And he produced this idea of having a customs union. He would arguably say, well, it would be a match for the yeah. uh, equivalent of the European Commission. And to explain it, Russia, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan and Ukraine, is that right? His idea was to have those countries, of which Ukraine arguably was the most significant. And Ukraine didn't join. They said they would become an observer, but they didn't join. And this was under President Yanukovych. Bringing it up now to, to now, uh, Cathy, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, it took many people and many experts, uh, so-called experts, by surprise. Were you, were you, did you see it coming or were you also surprised when the actual invasion took place? I didn't see it coming. The last place I'd been before we went into lockdown had been actually in Kyiv, and that had been looking at what was going on with the Russians, who were still, of course, uh, very heavily engaged in Donbass. And there was a feeling then in Kyiv that the world had sort of moved on from them. I don't think they felt that Europe was so interested and so engaged. Individual countries maybe, but perhaps less so the EU. Whether that's fair or not, others will judge. Um, but I didn't expect that we would see Russia so overtly determined to try and take the whole country. Right. Let's. Um, we're coming to the end of this chat, unfortunately. But let's let's come back in full circle to the the role of high representative and also the European External Action Service more broadly. It is often said, especially in Brussels, that the AS, you know, all these years on, uh, doesn't seem to have many friends. It's still trying to find its way. Uh, a lot of member states contest its legitimacy. Uh, people talk a great talk about the need for a Euro you know European autonomy when it comes to foreign policy and security policy. But when push comes to shove, member states don't agree. How how what, what's your view on this? How optimistic are you that the EAS and and the European foreign security policy does have a a serious future? It's always difficult being a Brit in the context <laughs> of what happened to my own country. But the External Action Service is only as good as people allow it to be. Right. It has some fantastic diplomats. Member states have provided some wonderful people. And its leadership is, is tremendous in terms of its ability to think about what a European response would be. If you helicopter over Europe, it is blindingly obvious that a strong collaborative foreign policy approach makes sense. Translating that into a service that can provide for all the EU member states and add to what they do. It's not about taking away from member states. Yeah. It's not about doing something the same. It's about doing things differently, being no. European. 
It sounds a bit like a, a geeky thing, but given the fact that I'm, I think I'm right in saying that uh, unanimity is required for any kind of serious decisions in the foreign affairs field, uh, does that mean, obviously that makes it pretty difficult <laughs> to find a consensus on key issues, but does that mean that fundamentally though that member states still only pay lip service though to the idea of a, of a Europe-wide uh, foreign policy? They want to keep their own clause on their own a national approach to foreign policy. It's very difficult to think of moving away from unanimity from my position, because the great thing about unanimity meant that we had everybody on board. We didn't have a little group that were going off and doing their own thing. Right. And the problem, if you move away from it, is you risk, and it will be the same countries all the time, having their own little foreign policy and right. declaring that they're not part of this. Right. And that breaches the fundamental point of having a European Union foreign policy. So I think working to try and keep unanimity is really important. It may not be possible in the end, but I think it's really, really important. And that's for the member states to decide that they think it's worth having this European-wide approach. On their own, mm. they're less able to do things. Right. On their own, their priorities don't get amplified. Mm. On their own, they're not able to operate necessarily in the places that they want to. But together, well, anything's possible. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Cathy Ashton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.